So today we find ourselves in Psalm 15. Would you please stand as we read God's word together? This is a Psalm of David, and he writes, Lord, who can dwell in your tent? Who can live on your holy mountain? The one who lives blamelessly, practices righteousness, and acknowledges the truth in his heart, who does not slander with his tongue, who does not harm his friend or discredit his neighbor, who despises the one rejected by the Lord, but who but honors those who fear the Lord, who keeps his word, whatever the cost, who does not lend his silver at interest or take a bribe against the innocent, the one who does these things will never be shaken. May the Lord bless the reading of his word. You may be seated. So, what are the questions that keep you awake at night? As you put your head on your pillow, what are some of the things that kind of run through your head and you just kind of wonder about various different things? Different people might have different things going through their heads. I know at one point every night it seems like, man, how are we going to pay for college? How how is that going to work? Or maybe something a little more serious, a little more intimate. How are we going to stay together? Meaning you and your husband or wife, how are we going to make it through this? Now, those are some of the heavier questions. Some of us might have deep thoughts running through our heads. Things like, if I delete the recycle bin on my computer, where does it go? Huh? I mean, where does it go? Or maybe you're like me, you just feel like, you know, you're going to restructure the NFL and kind of, you know, and so you go, oh, how do I do this? How do, you know, just different things uh, that we we keep ourselves awake with and occupy our minds as we're putting our heads on those pillows, trying to get some sleep. But this morning we're in Psalm 15, and it begins with one of the most important consequential questions anyone could ever ask. Lord, who can dwell in your tent? Who can live on your holy mountain? Now this is actually one question stated two different ways. The parallelism built into Hebrew poetry has the tendency to state and then restate something, an idea, a truth, into, in, in order to clarify meaning or provide emphasis. So it's going to say the same thing twice to kind of bring that meaning out, to br- provide that emphasis. And both questions make the same query. Is there anyone who God finds acceptable so that he allows them to move in and enjoy his presence forever? Or to put it in more personal terms, God, how can I know that you will welcome me into your presence to live with you forever? In other words, this question is not about those who just present themselves before the Lord to report to him like Satan does in Job chapter 2, verse 1. This question is about who is welcome to remain with the Lord as though they belong there. Now, is that a question that keeps you up at night? Now, many of us may say, no, that, that question doesn't concern me because of your faith in Christ. You may not think about it very often because Jesus has resolved that question for you. You've repented of your sin. You've placed your trust in Christ alone. And so in part, you, you, you did that because you believe Jesus is the answer to this question. 
And by his grace, you don't really think about it all that much. Now that's the best case scenario of why you might not think about this question, but others among us don't really think about it because, well, you don't care. Or think you have more important things to worry about. It doesn't really concern you so, so much at the moment because it's not on your radar. Now, that's the worst case reason for not bringing this question up to mind. No one should ever be apathetic about how they will spend their eternity or about their quality of life here on earth until that eternity. You see, unlike the questions to your seventh or how you filed your taxes last year, this question matters the most. For Christians and non-Christians alike, this question should occupy your thoughts at least from time to time because this, your answer to that question will directly impact both your present life and your existence in the next. As a Hebrew, few things would have mattered more to David, the author of our psalm. So much of Hebrew life and religion was centered around this kind of question. In Exodus 19, the Israelites found themselves at the base of Mount Sinai not long after they had been released from slavery in Egypt. They also found themselves nearly face to face with God, and they quickly concluded that God's presence was something they were unworthy of and totally unprepared for. The tabernacle and then the temple after it reinforced awareness of the impassable chasm between God and humanity with an area called the Holy of Holies. Just entering that part of the temple, unless you were the properly prepared high priest on a specific day of the year, meant instant death. They had a whole sacrificial system denoting which animal had to be sacrificed for which level of sin and a whole segment of their community, the tribe of Levi, dedicated to interceding for the people between them and God. All this because, as all human beings are sinners, no one could live on God's holy mountain with him. So if that's the case, then what are we doing here? Well, we're, doing, we're, we're here because David's divinely inspired answer points us to the final answer. And this first answer is not just the presentation of an insurmountable obstacle. It's also a guide and a description of our greatest hope. David's answer consumes the bulk of this short psalm by taking us from verse 2 into the first version of verse 5. And it consists of six parts because, again, the parallelism of Hebrew poetry lends, to, lends a structure to these verses that doesn't always follow precisely the division of this text into its five verses. So we've got six things packed into these verses. And those parts of David's answer are representative answers to the question of who may dwell with the Lord. They should not be taken as a complete checklist, but as a list of examples to help us understand the character and the qualities of the kind of person who is welcome in God's presence forever. In fact, we find similar answers to similar questions in places like Psalm 24 and Isaiah 33. In Isaiah 33, verses 14 through 17, we read this. The sinners in Zion are afraid. Trembling seizes the ungodly. Who among us can, can dwell with a consuming fire? Who among us can dwell with ever-burning flames? 
The one who lives righteously and speaks rightly, who refuses to profit from extortion, whose hand never takes a bribe, who's, who stops his ears from listening to murderous plots and shuts his eyes against evil schemes. He will dwell on the heights. His refuge will be the rocky fortress, his food provided, his water assured. Your eyes will see the king in his beauty, and you will see a vast land. Do you see the similarities? But do you note the difference, differences? God isn't trying to use David to recite a definitive list of specific qualifications as though this is a recipe for holiness. The six qualifications in Psalm 15, like the list in Psalm 24 and Isaiah 33, are here to give us the big picture and to point us to the final answer. Now, one last thing before we dive in. There is a common denominator among the components of David's answer that won't surprise students of Scripture, and that is holiness. In other words, the entire answer can be summed up as it often is in God's Word. How can anyone be welcomed into God's presence forever? God says, be holy as I am holy. Four times in the book of Leviticus, uh, he makes that statement, be holy as I am holy. God makes his standard very clear. In the New Testament, the same standard is held up. In 1 Peter chapter 1, verses 15 through 16, Peter writes, but as the one who called you is holy, you also are to be holy in all your conduct, for it is written, be holy because I am holy. He's quoting Leviticus 19.2 there. In Hebrews 12, verse 14, we read, pursue peace with everyone and holiness. Why? Without it, no one will see the Lord. Of course, this creates for us as human beings, doesn't it? No one is holy enough. Only God is worshipped as holy, holy, holy. Holiness is the minimum requirement for enjoying God's presence forever. And as James Montgomery Boyce points out, what do these six couplets cover? They cover the approved man's character, speech, conduct, values, integrity, and use of money. The holiness God demands of us must be comprehensive, impacting all aspects of who we are and how we live. So let's this answer David provides us. It begins in verse 2, in the first half of verse 2, the one who lives blamelessly and practices righteousness. The one who is welcome to dwell with the Lord forever is a holy life. From the start, David's answer sets the bar very, very high. God is looking for men and women of action. Verse 2 isn't talking about someone who just talks a good game. This is someone who lives blamelessly and practices righteousness. These are verbs. This is about getting things done. I don't know about you, but anytime I encounter the word blameless in a Bible verse, it makes me nervous. Even more so if it's used in a passage like this one, because if blameless is the standard, then I am most definitely out of consideration already. Thankfully, the Hebrew behind that word does not necessarily mean perfection. It's really more a statement about being whole and sound, something that's sure and reliable. It speaks to the attitude of the heart. When the Bible uses this term, it's often describing someone 
and, and, and a practice of consistent pursuit of what pleases God. The old, think about Old Testament giants like Noah and Abraham. Now, these men were considered blameless, but as we know from Scripture and its comprehensive witness, only Christ is perfect. David says that the one who meets God's standard actively lives for the Lord. There is an intention, there is consistency about how they live. Again, James Montgomery Boyce helps us. He says that the, this person is not just strong in one area and weak in others. He strives to keep all the commandments. What is more, he does not vacillate in his commitment to them. He is the same Monday through Saturday as on Sunday morning. The ESV translates the beginning of verse 2 as describing someone who walks blamelessly. The Holman Old Testament commentary points this out. It says it, that this describes the daily pattern of a person's life and the direction of a person's lifestyle. We must practice righteousness. Human beings, and this is each and every one of us, were born sinners. We have inherited a sin nature from Adam and Eve. Once we have been freed from enslavement to sin through faith in Christ, we must begin the lifelong process of practicing something we are not by nature. We will falter. We will wander from that effort from time to time. There will be prodigals among us for seasons of their lives. But when seen as a whole, the life of one who is accepted by God will be, will be steady, though uneven, and progress will be shown to be made toward that goal of holy living. Next, we see that the one who is welcome to dwell in God's presence speaks with holiness. The second component of David's answer reveals what this person does and how that action shapes what they do not do. Our hearts matter a great deal to God. Actions have their place and they are certainly meaningful, but actions are driven and given their ultimate meaning by the hearts that drive those actions. In Matthew chapter 15, verse 8, Jesus, quoting Isaiah 29, verse 13, repeated God's concern for our hearts, saying, This people honors me with their lips, but their heart is far from me. The acceptable person honors God by acknowledging the truth in his or her heart, and it produces fruit in what they do not do. David says this acceptable person does not slander with his tongue. By honoring the truth in their hearts, the acceptable person consistently refuses to slander others. Slander almost always involves exaggerating or simply making things up in order to hurt someone else, to bring them down. The Holman Old Testament commentary points out the word devil means slanderer, and a person is never more like the evil one nor more used by the prince of darkness than when he verbally attacks another person. This person, though, that David describes speaks with holiness because that's who they are from the inside. Third, this acceptable person is shown to be someone who loves others in holiness. This is the kind of person who can not only find welcome embrace from the Lord, but from their earthly community as well. Listen, the gospel, by its very nature, is offensive. Simply on the basis of your faithfulness to the Lord, you are going to find 
opposition, just as Jesus did. The world hated him, and it will hate his followers. But this does not excuse Christ's ambassadors stooping to the level of their aggressors. You and I, we're we're meant to be salt and light. We're meant to be examples who pursue the flourishing of our neighbors, even and especially the ones who oppose us or mistreat us or just live what we know to be sinful lifestyles. That's what makes the person to be holy love for others. Christians should never be the source of harm done to our community. Christians should never be known for discrediting our neighbors. This is in line with the qualification regarding slander that we just talked about. Those who wish to be received into the Lord's presence forever will not take matters into their own hands, but live by faith in the Lord to settle those accounts. We are simply called to love our neighbor as ourselves. That alone will usually set us apart from a world that is increasingly cold and self-centered. May such words never be used to describe the followers of Christ. Now, just in case anyone misunderstands this holy love for one's neighbor to be any kind of slippery slope towards syncretism or assimilation into the world, the fourth component of David's answer reveals that the acceptable person is someone who maintains holy relationships. Remember, more than anything, holy refers to someone or something that is set apart, distinct for a purpose. Here we're told that the acceptable person despises the one rejected by the Lord. Now at first, this may seem like very strong language that would appear to contradict even just the verse before. So what is David talking about? Is he justifying hate and mistreatment of non-believers? I don't believe so. And here's why. To begin with, Jesus uses similar language in Luke chapter 14, verse 26. If anyone comes to me and does not hate his own father and mother, wife and children, brothers and sisters, yes, even his own life, he cannot be my disciple. Now this is easily misunderstood teaching. But since God, and Jesus is God, also teaches us to honor our father and mother in a little thing known as the fifth commandment, he cannot be teaching us to hate our parents. God would also not teach us to hate our neighbor, who he he commanded us to love as ourselves. In fact, David is teaching us the very same thing Jesus taught us centuries later. By comparison with our love for the Lord, even our love for our neighbor should look like we despise them. Secondly, who am I to know who the Lord has ultimately rejected? Now, many times we can have a pretty good idea who's been rejected, particularly if they keep on the path they may presently be on. But even then, as a fellow human being, I can't see into another person's heart. I I certainly can't see their future. So God may yet redeem those I'm tempted to write off or give up on. So we do despise those rejected by the Lord by refusing to join in the sin and rebellion of those who want us to join in their wickedness. But we leave the actual judgment up to him, up to the Lord. It's his alone anyway. This is one of the reasons why, at least personally, I 
strive to avoid circumstances where I might find myself celebrating what I know to be sin. This is why I won't attend personally an event that claims to marry two men and two women, though I will invite those very same folks to church with me, and I will help them in any way possible as a neighbor. I'll eat in their house. They can come over to mine. But we are to follow David's standard here in verse 4 by spending our time and energy identifying with who and honoring who? Those who fear the Lord. So far, the answer to this question, who, will, who can dwell in the Lord's tent and who can live on his holy mountain, is this. The one who lives a holy life, speaks with holiness, loves others in holiness, and maintains holy relationships. We have two more qualifications that David lists here in verses 2 through 5. Fifth, the approved person prizes holy integrity. They prize it so much that he or she is willing to pay whatever it may cost to maintain that integrity. Now, this is not easy for most of us. I've heard stories about you from your workplaces and even neighborhoods where this test has really cost in in some circumstances. Maybe it's a promotion. Maybe it's uh, some other aspect of esteem from your colleagues. But this costs us sometimes. Sometimes we, we make promises and we know we can't keep them because we're just trying to make somebody happy, tell them what we want to hear. That's not what we're talking about here. This qualification speaks to the heart of why the integrity of so many of us fails. Why we find it so easy to lie because it appears to be the easy way out. Just, just make people happy. Just tell them what they hear. But in those moments, the truth, which was mentioned earlier as something acknowledged within the heart of someone who's holy, is a casualty of such casualness with what is and what is not true. So what about you? Is your integrity so valuable to you that you will pay whatever it costs to keep it? God is looking for those who prize holy integrity. Finally, David notes that the approved person values holiness over worldly gain. He cites examples for how this could happen. First, he says that this person does not lend his silver at interest. Now, I've never been in a position to lend money to someone else, and many of us may not have ever been in that position or may never be in that position. But second, he says this person does not take a bribe against the innocent. So what are we to do with these things? Does this mean that uh, taking a bribe against the guilty would be okay? Because maybe we could make their punishment worse? What's being described here? Again, the issue is the heart. Someone who lends money at interest is acting contrary to God's instruction. If they're doing so to a fellow believer, or in the Old Testament, a fellow Israelite, or to the poor. So the issue at at stake here is, is taking advantage of someone who doesn't have the means to begin with. So if we act or fail to act, so that the end result is the further oppression of the poor, we are placing our interests above the well-being of our fellow human beings. And that is greed, and that is sin. By doing so, we reveal that our material comfort is a higher priority to us than the needs of others. 
And that, this is not valuing holiness over worldly gain. This is what we see when Christian leaders fawn over polit- politicians of, of any party. This is what we see when someone gets themselves a, a televised pulpit and all of a sudden they're preaching a, a wealth and health gos- kind of gospel, a prosperity kind of gospel. Taking bribes to subvert justice is equally immoral and unholy. Perhaps we read this verse and we think to ourselves, well, I've never been a judge or, or a lawyer, so how could this apply to me? It applies to us anytime, anytime we play a role in matters of justice in our community. It, it may be uh, a situation may, might involve the way we, we vote, who we advocate for politically, or how we influence the rules of the neighborhoods we live in through things like HOAs and that, that, that sort of thing. Anytime we say to ourselves and we look at what our neighbors are going through and we say, oh, well, that, that doesn't really impact me, without fully considering whatever that is, how it impacts others, well, we may be very much like those who are taking a bribe against the innocent because in some way we may be contributing to their oppression. Anytime we value worldly gain over holiness, we fail to meet God's standard for holiness. So that brings us to the promise. After sharing the qualifications for someone to be welcomed into God's presence forever, David concludes with this. The one who does these things will never be shaken. It's an interesting statement. It's an indirect way of answering the question posed in verse 1. After all, if we are accepted to dwell with God, is there anything that can truly shake us? The outcomes of elections, the demands of fighting a a pandemic, the values of our culture's celebrities, whatever it is that might occupy your mind, none of that shakes the kind of person David has been describing. In contrast, the acceptable worshiper, worshiper of Psalm 15 is more like the righteous one of Psalm 1, described in verse 3 as, He is like a tree planted beside flowing streams that bears its fruit in its season, and its leaf does not wither. Whatever he does prospers. This is the kind of person David's describing in, verse, in Psalm 15. This is because whoever does these things does them because of who they are on the inside. Those actions are the fruit of who they are and the nature by which they live. Those in Christ have a nature, and they live more and more over time, not perfectly, but more and more over time, they live in accordance with it. This leads us to our final answer. Now, I know this might sound like uh, we've reached the crucial moment in the game show, Who Wants to Be a Millionaire? On, on the show, just to remind you, especially if a contestant has used some kind of help, like phoning a friend or consulting uh, the polling on a particular question, the host will always conclude with the question, by asking, is that your final answer? Well, in Psalm 15, it uses the answer given to us and it offers it like a lifeline to point us to the ultimate answer, which of course is Jesus. Like the question posed in verse 1, the final answer comes to us in two parts, what Jesus did for us and what Jesus does in us. Let's look at what Jesus did for us. In this side of the cross, 
We can read, those of us who trust in Christ can read Psalm 15 and find not, again, not an insurmountable obstacle, but our greatest hope. Believers in Christ can read about all the holiness that is required of those who would ever attempt to dwell with the Lord, and they can, they can go through all of that, the living the holy life, speaking with holiness, loving others in holiness, maintaining holy relationships, prizing holy integrity, and valuing holiness over worldly gain. They can look at all of that, and you know what we see? We see Christ. We see the only one who has ever perfectly met those standards. Paul wrote about this in Philippians chapter 2, verses 7 and 8. And when he, that is Jesus, had come as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even to death on a cross. Jesus left nothing undone. He was fully obedient over the course of his entire life, all the way through to the final thing asked of him, death on a cross. The answer to Psalm 15's question is Jesus. It is found in what Jesus did for us through his perfect life, his sacrificial death, and his victorious resurrection. We lack nothing because by God's grace and only by his grace, we are all given what we need. Jesus has offered his credentials in exchange for ours. Ours would be worthless. It'd be like trying to go through one of the gates on base and presenting to the guard your two-year-old's colorful scribbles and unrecognizable shapes and presenting that and say, hey, here's my ID. No offense to your two-year-old. I'm sure he or she is precious and a genius, (laughs) fills their diapers with Skittles and rainbows as they walk on water. But that piece of paper, would be garbage compared to the validity and the power of the credentials you actually need to get past that guard. There's a picture uh, from my office, a wall in my office. A few years ago, I found that someone had printed the text of Galatians 2.20 as a vinyl decal you know, that can be uh, put on the wall, and Galatians 2.20 is my all-time favorite verse since early in my teens. So when I got the decal, I realized that by reusing the word Christ, I could arrange the words so that it would be in the shape of a cross. I really liked the way that turned out. This is what Galatians 2.20 says. I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who gave himself for me. Jesus is the answer to David's question because of what he did for us and because of what he does in us over the course of our lives. When we look at David's list of qualifications, not only do we see Jesus who perfectly met those qualifications, we also see what Jesus does in us to transform us into someone who also meets those same qualifications. You see, Jesus, through the presence and work of the Holy Spirit in my life and your life, is at work in us. This is what Paul was talking about. Upon putting our faith in Christ, we die with him in his crucifixion. Now, don't ask me how God does it. Let's just take him at his word. He just does it. But from that moment forward, Christ lives in and through us. 
On our own, no, we cannot be as holy as God is holy. That's the standard of Psalm 15. But the good news of the gospel is that we can become holy as we are sanctified. That is, we are made holy over whatever time remains in our lives. This means that we need not wait for glorification, that is, the beginning of our eternal lives after our death on earth, to see this holiness in operation in ourselves. God begins that work from the moment of faith. And let's be clear, we are all works in progress. Some of us experience this at a faster pace than others in different parts of our lives, but Jesus is doing this work in us through the Holy Spirit. And this is great news. It means that all those who trust in Christ have twice the hope. Yes, we have the hope of eternal life and the complete holiness that we will experience then, but we have a second hope. Our second hope is that God will give us a taste of that holiness that is to come in the here and now as he transforms us into someone who will live a holier life tomorrow than we did today, someone who will speak with holiness more than we did today, someone who loves others in greater holiness than we did today, and so on and so on. Paul encourages us with these words in Romans chapter 8, verses 1 through 4. You got that? There we go. Therefore, there is no condemnation for those in Christ Jesus, because the law of the Spirit of life in Christ Jesus has set you free from the law of sin and death. For what the law could not do, since it was weakened by the flesh, God did. He condemned sin in the flesh by sending his own Son in the likeness of sinful flesh as a sin offering, in order that the law's requirement would be fulfilled in us who do not walk according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. Listen, faith in Christ is not just a get-out-of-hell card that we can play someday to escape an unpleasant end, and that is, of course, putting it very mildly. Faith in Christ sustains and uplifts us in the here and the now, and our new life in Christ transforms us day by day more and more into his likeness. So let's conclude with a few applications of these truths. First, do not take it lightly when it is time to come to worship the Lord. Brother Jim prayed earlier that we come before this throne by the blood of Christ. It was not cheaply earned, this access to the throne of grace. So as we gather each Sunday in worship, as you worship personally as as was mentioned in our ABF lesson this morning. Don't do that lightly. Understand that God is at work in you as you do that, as you gather together in this assembly each Sunday to worship the Lord. Also, remember that these are representative answers that David is is giving us. In other words, again, not giving us a checklist, okay, I did did all this stuff, because honestly, when we look at that list, we're going to, at least when I look at the list, I'm going, oh, nope, nope, uh, nope. Really what we're talking about is as we, look of, as we look at the kind of person that is acceptable to the Lord, that he is seeking as worshipers, do you, 
Do you pick up on this the way I do? Isn't this exactly the same kind of person the world claims to be seeking? Isn't this the same kind of person that everybody around us claims to be saying they want to see, particularly when they think about Christians? Aren't Christians supposed to be this, this, this? I mean, think about it. Aren't they looking for someone who practices what they preach, who speaks the truth, who loves others more than they love themselves, who, who owns who they are without compromising, who lives with integrity and doesn't sell out their values and convictions for a buck? Isn't that exactly who the world says they're looking for? One more thing. If Psalm 15 reminds us of anything, it's that none of us has it all together. Every single one of us, elders, deacons, church members, first-time guests, somebody sleeping off their hangover a mile away, every single one of us needs a Savior. Now, none of us is worthy to dwell with the Lord forever. Now, we've, we've just talked about what, what we have in Christ, two amazing hopes that we have through Him, what, he has, what He's enabled us to have access to in eternity and the way He transforms us now in our everyday lives. So we, we have lots of good things in Him, but this brings up an issue that, quite honestly, I think is one of the biggest for the contemporary church today. It's one of our greatest handicaps, and it is self-imposed, and that is this. Can we stop pretending? Can we stop pretending that we all kind of have it all together? Now, there's a balancing act here, okay? We don't want to necessarily turn this into, you know, trying to outdo each other by having the biggest sin, okay? That's taking it in the wrong direction. But if you're here this morning, and you're just kind of Every Sunday for you is, is kind of how you're, you're faking it to make it kind of attitude. Can we stop? If you're here today and you're kind of hiding who you are because you're not really sure how this church would respond if, if they knew. If you're discouraged because you look at others around you and you think, well, I, I can't live up to that. I, I could never be like that person. They're so kind. They're always, they're always forgiving. They're always happy, you know, whatever it is. Can we just kind of acknowledge, again, face-to-face with Psalm 15, that none of us has it all together. None of us is worthy. I'm not up here more than you, and you're not down there because you're less than me. Can we be kind of church that is both humble and transparent enough while being firm in our convictions. I'm not talking about backing off anything. But we can hold our convictions. We can build those on God's word. We can be intolerant of sin among us and yet at the same time recognize that it's in all of us, even as we are sinners saved by grace. Can we be the kind of church where grace abounds even more than our sin? To answer David's question, based on the answer he was divinely inspired to give us, everyone who repents of their sin and puts their faith in Christ, yes, may dwell with the Lord forever. That's people of every tribe, nation, and tongue. That's people of every past and of every present. They are welcome in his tent. Any color, those with large bank accounts, those with no bank accounts at all. 
those who speak English, those who don't speak English, they speak many other languages around the world. Republicans? Democrats? Westerners, Easterners, Northerners, Southerners? We all need a Savior. None of us can save ourselves. And praise God, we have a Savior, and His name is Jesus. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, Lord, we thank you for this important reminder from your word this morning. You have used your servant David to remind us both of our unworthiness and our rich blessings that we have in Christ. Lord, you have offered us a tremendous gift which we may receive simply by faith. Lord, there's, there's no test, there's no obstacle course we have to complete. There's no checklist we have to complete before we are acceptable to you. Lord, it is simply by faith, repenting of our sin, turning from that sin, and putting our faith and reliance on Christ, who he is and what he did for us. And Lord, your word teaches us that if we do that, from that moment, you will begin to be at work inside us, transforming us to become the kind of person who is worthy to dwell in your tent, who is worthy to be in your presence forever on your mountain. Lord, none of us are there yet, but thank you. By your grace, many of us are in journeys, moving towards becoming that kind of person because of your work in our lives. And Lord, today, the rest of us who have not begun that journey have heard They've heard about what they have offered to them in Christ. And Lord, I pray that you would open hearts and minds. For some of us, it's dealing with that issue that, yeah, we're, we're, not, we're not holy enough and we should maybe kind of stop acting like we are. And Lord, we should extend that grace to one another that you have extended to us. But for some of us, Lord, we haven't even started on that journey yet. And we simply need to reach up and put our faith in Christ and begin that journey this morning. Lord, however you're speaking to us, however you're at work in our lives this morning, we pray that you would have your way here among us. We ask that in Christ's name. Amen.